1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 244 Not Completely Unreasonable. Last time, we followed Manawil to the abandoned fortress of Myriokephalon, and then on into the pass of Zibritz. The Emperor's attempt at a crusade was cut to pieces in the defile, and when the Sultan of Iconium offered to make peace, Komnenos eagerly agreed. The terms of the ceasefire included the demand that the Romans pull down the two fortresses they had recently erected at Suvleon and Dorileum. Each sat at an entry point to the plateau. Manuel made his way home via Suvleon and duly destroyed the fortress, but he left Dorileum where it was and offered no explanation when the sultan complained. It was a provocative gesture. Dorylaeum guarded the traditional crusader route onto the plateau. In response, Kilijazlan sent a large army down the Meander Valley to cause havoc. This they duly did, sacking half a dozen settlements and only turning back when they reached the Aegean. The Romans, freed from the constraints of crusading warfare, were able to use their traditional methods to counterattack. Emmanuel put John Vatatzes in charge of the army, the brother of the man whose head had been displayed on a spear to intimidate the Byzantines during the Battle of Myriokephalon. John quickly marched his troops up the Meander Valley to get ahead of the slow-moving Turks. The nomads were returning from their raid at a leisurely pace because they now dragged cartloads of loot and slaves with them. The Romans were able to garrison a key bridge and line the nearby sides of the valley with concealed troops. The ambush that followed gave the empire a certain measure of revenge for Mirio The Turks fled with heavy losses and abandoned much of what they'd taken. Hostilities continued for several years. Roman troops attacked a Turkic force on the edge of the plateau with little success, and then the Turks attempted to besiege the city of Claudiopolis in Paphlagonia. This time Manuel led troops himself to relieve the city, which was only 150 miles from the capital. The Vasilevs probably felt that he needed to be seen campaigning in person to help wipe the stain of defeat from his regalia. His appearance on the field of battle was enough to convince the Turks to pack up and go home. The campaign of Mirio Kefalon had drained the treasury. There was no chance that Manuel could raise another force of such size any time soon. But he had to make the sultan believe that he could. That was the only way to get a new peace treaty organised, an honourable treaty that would be accepted back home, not one signed under duress in the pass of Zibrids. We don't actually have the details of the peace which seems to have been struck in 1179 but Manawil's tactics must have worked somewhat. Mirio may have been a disaster, but the sheer size of the army that he marched to Iconium gave the sultan sleepless nights. By maintaining his fortress at Dorylaeum, the emperor kept the prospect of a repeat performance alive. We learn from our German sources that Kilijarslan was worried about this. He sent an embassy all the way to the Holy Roman Empire, to talk to Frederick Barbarossa. Diplomatic contact between the Seljuks and the Germans had been established years before. The Turks were used to high-level Latins passing by on their way to Jerusalem. According to one German chronicler, Kilij Arslan offered to convert to Christianity if it meant he could marry Barbarossa's daughter and secure peace. This might be wishful thinking on the part of a Christian writer, but the Seljuks happily employed Christians in their administration, and of course their Anatolian realm was full of them. Was it inconceivable that kilijarslan would convert in order to maintain his political power? Manuel's behaviour soon after this treaty suggests there may be something to it. Either way, the Germans did not form an alliance with either side, and the Romans and Turks signed a new peace treaty. It's safe to assume that it restored the pre miriokephalon status quo. Speaking of Barbarossa, four months before Miriokephalon, he also suffered an embarrassing defeat at Lengano, near Milan. This was Frederick's fifth attempt to march into Italy and dictate terms. And yet again, he was met by stern resistance from the independent cities of the peninsula. Accepting that war was getting him nowhere, Barbarossa decided to negotiate. He offered to put aside his anti-pope and finally recognize Alexander III as the true pontiff. A conference was held in Venice the following summer, where the emperor duly bowed before the Vicar of Christ. Present at this conference were all the major powers of Italy, and notable by their absence were the Byzantines. Manuel had wanted a conference like this for decades, one where the Pope, the Germans, and the Byzantines would get together and decide the fate of Italy, ideally sealing an alliance against the Normans in the south. Instead, having alienated the Germans, the Venetians, and the Normans, Manuel was ignored. The Pope denied having anything to do with the imperial agents still resident at Ancona, and Byzantine interests were completely sidelined. Dangerously, the Normans concluded a 15-year peace with Barbarossa. Though Byzantium seemed isolated, all was not lost. Manoel's relentless efforts to win Latin approval continued. A year after Miriokephalon, a fleet of 150 ships left Constantinople and headed for the Holy Land. They were there to launch a second campaign against Egypt, a clear demonstration of the Roman commitment to Outremere's survival. The campaign never materialised, as the Latins couldn't agree on how to proceed, so the fleet sailed home. But the Byzantines made contact with Philip of Flanders, a major French aristocrat who was one of the few who'd responded to Manuel's call for a crusade. In part due to this connection, Manoel was able to marry his son to the daughter of the King of France. This was Louis Seventh, who Manoel knew personally, having given him a guided tour of Constantinople during the Second Crusade. Though the French might seem a distant ally for Byzantium, they remained the leading supporters of Outremere, and were on excellent terms with the Pope. It was a highly prized match and would hopefully mean that Byzantium was consulted the next time a crusade was organised. Manoel also found a husband for his daughter Maria, who he'd already offered to Bella of Hungary, William of Sicily, and Barbarossa. She would instead marry Renia of Montferrat. Again, this might not sound like an exciting alliance, but the family of Montferrat were a leading clan in northwest Italy, with strong crusading connections and a history of opposing the German emperor. Renier was only 17 when he arrived in Constantinople in 1179, while young Agnes of France was only 8. Both were greeted with suitable festivities, and the promised marriages suggested that the courts of Europe still viewed Byzantium as a crucial partner in their ongoing activities. Though the chances of a union between the churches of Rome and Constantinople seemed unlikely, Manuel continued to be a force for Christian unity. His diplomats had spent the past decade negotiating with the Archbishop of Armenia, aiming to reunite the Armenian and Orthodox churches. I won't go into the theological issues at stake, as needless to say, the reunion did not take place, but the diplomatic effort did impress contemporaries. Since the Armenians dominated Cilicia and the Taurus Mountains, they now had strong contacts with the Latins of Outramir. And the Roman effort to bring them all together won general approval. Manuel was again attempting to position Byzantium as a pro-Latin, pro-Crusader power. In theory, if all the Christians from Constantinople to Cairo could be united in an anti-Muslim coalition, it would be good news for everyone and the Roman emperor would be the natural leader of such a movement. Of course, not everyone was thrilled at the prospect. After all, a negotiation implied that each side was willing to give something up, and in this case it was orthodox theology that was being discussed. Most Byzantine bishops firmly believed that their dogmas were unchanging and unchangeable. Manuel's attempts to discuss change for political purposes were therefore viewed with deep suspicion. Komnenos' relationship with his church had changed significantly over the years. You may remember that in his first decade in power, he'd issued a series of generous decisions in the clergy's favour, granting them financial and legal privileges, including favouring them in any property dispute. This had been a necessary expedient, since many felt that the emperor's elevation was improper and that his older brother Isaac should really be on the throne. Decades later, though, Manuel no longer felt the need to kowtow to his clergy. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about the discussions around reuniting the church with Rome and how Manuel came in person before a synod to argue the case for the Latin understanding of Jesus' statement that my father is greater than I the emperor bullied the assembled bishops into accepting his formula, despite persistent opposition. The emperor continued to take a high-handed approach to the church from then on. He completely changed his tune about matters of property, reviving Nicephorus Focus's laws against the expansion of monastic holdings. As Manuel's expenses skyrocketed, he, like many emperors before him, began to look on ecclesiastical property and its exemption from much taxation as deleterious to the interests of the state. Manuel also began to change the law. He criticised the church for offering sanctuary to murderers from across the empire. Apparently persistent criminals were doing away with their enemies, then travelling to the Hagia Sophia to beg for mercy. They were being granted indulgences and sent on their way, rather than being forced into a monastery or any other suitable penance. Manawil also tampered with the laws concerning consanguinity in marriage, as in marrying someone you were related to. The church had clear rules about this, but in a tight-knit aristocracy like the Comnenoi, this was always going to be an issue. Earlier in his reign, Manawil had backed the church in strictly enforcing these rules, possibly because he'd made a match for one of his relatives that he now regretted. While later in his reign, he criticised the church, urging them to bring the rules more in line with Latin custom. Again, we suspect, because he had a foreign marriage in mind that the church was frowning on. At the end of his life, around the same time that Kilijarsland supposedly considered converting, Manuel made his most controversial suggestion the emperor approached his bishops about changing the rules for those converting from Islam to Christianity. The church had an established service ready for these occasions, where the converting Muslim would be asked to condemn his former beliefs in Muhammad and Allah. This ceremony caused some confusion amongst the population of Anatolia, who, by this point, had many half-Christian, half-Muslim children wandering around. This issue was brought to Manuel's attention during the peace negotiations in the wake of Miriokephalon. A Seljuk converting to Christianity had questioned why he should have to abandon Allah when he was the same god the Christians worshipped. Perhaps he could just renounce Muhammad's teaching instead. This line of reasoning pleased the emperor, who saw great advantages in encouraging the Muslims of Anatolia to convert but, as you can imagine, the Orthodox clergy were having none of it. You might recall that they were accused during the Second Crusade of scrubbing their altars clean after the Latins had used them. They were hardly going to look kindly on Muslims making half-hearted confessions of faith. But Manuel again pushed them to accept his point. A new formula was established, removing God from the anathema that converts had to swear. This compromise only lasted another year, though. Once Manuel was gone, the church abandoned the new wording. None of this strong-arming of the church seems to have made the public think that their emperor was anything less than orthodox. In 1169, in a much-publicised ceremony, Manuel welcomed the Stone of Unction to Constantinople. This was the slab... Jesus was laid on after he was taken down from the cross. The relic had apparently been resting at Ephesus for some time. It was unloaded at the Bacolion harbour, and Manuel helped carry it to its new home in the palace. The Vasilefs is accused by Coniates of overtaxing his subjects. You may remember that during the Battle of Myriokephalon. Coniates had Manuel being rebuked by a series of common soldiers as he stumbled down the pass of Sibritz. One of these vignettes had Komnenos almost drinking water mixed with the blood of his dead soldiers, and that a passing infantryman commented that the emperor had been draining his subject's life force for many years. This seems to be a reference to the heavy taxation which Manuel must have levied in order to pay for the armies and navies that he raised in the last decade of his reign. Now, complaints about taxation can be found in almost every history ever written, so it's difficult to know whether Komnenos was taking too much from his subjects. Certainly, the campaigns against Egypt and the Seljuks would have been costly, and Manuel rarely seems to have had quiet years – even when the empire was at peace, he was sending subsidies to Italy. Coniates complains that Manuel allowed too many foreigners to collect taxes from the native population. He may be referring to a few foreign officials or tax farmers, but generally he means the foreign soldiers who were given grants of pronoia, as in lands they could collect revenues from directly. We talked about this process back in episode 239. He says that these barbarians persecuted the peasants they gained control over and that various unsuitable people enlisted just so that they too would be granted parcels of land. One of the problems with Coniates is that he co-authored his history with hindsight. After Manoel's death, various parts of the empire will begin to display separatist tendencies, culminating in the breakup of the empire after the sack of 1204 AD. So his complaints about taxation and pro may be a case of him working backwards from disaster towards root causes. The reality may be that these policies worked fine when the central government was strong. It was only when central authority began to collapse that local corruption started to look like the cause of the empire's ills. This is a debate still going on in academia. We just don't have enough data to be sure of the effects of particular policies on the economy. There certainly doesn't seem to be anything wrong with government finances while Manuel was in charge. The money continued to flow in, and the empire was able to recover quickly from major setbacks. The fact that Manuel could have all the Venetians in Byzantium arrested tells you that their trading activities were hardly critical to state revenues. In fact, Manuel helped secure the tax receipts of western Anatolia by building new fortresses to protect the people there. I never got round to talking about this during the build-up to Myriokephalon but the emperor continued the work of his father and grandfather by fortifying the lowland areas of Roman territory to better protect the peasantry from Turkic raids. A series of castles were built in the region of Pergamum, which cut the nomads out and allowed the local population to flourish. Coniates confidently asserts that this was one of the best things Manuel ever did, and in this case, Coniates' hindsight is valuable because writing 20 plus years after the emperor's death, he could attest to the success of this new defensive network. Despite all this positivity, it seems clear that Manuel was a spender. It doesn't seem like he left much in the treasury when he died. His reasoning might have been that the empire was rich and next year's takings would soon come in, but had Manuel planned for rainier days, it might have helped his successors deal with crises to come. It's also worth saying that by 1179, he had taken steps to normalise relations with Venice. He'd released almost all of those still being held and had begun negotiations to compensate the Italians for their seized property. This was something of a climb-down. Perhaps in the wake of his exclusion from Barbarossa's peace conference, he realised that alienating the Venetians was a mistake. Finally, then, we come to the last year of Manuel's life, 1180 AD. According to Coniates, the emperor began to feel ill around March, but didn't die until September. During these months, another dramatic chapter in the story of Manuel's cousin Andronicus took place. For Andronicus's full story, do go back to episode 238 and our interview with Catherine Pangonis. But to recap, after escaping prison back in the 1160s, Manuel appointed Andronicus to be the governor of Cilicia. In typically foolhardy fashion, Andronicus picked a fight with the Armenians and lost. Rather than crawl back to Constantinople, the renegade prince fled to Antioch, and then on to Jerusalem. Once in the Holy Land, he seduced his niece Theodora before absconding with her to the court of Nur al-Din. This scandalous episode finally prompted Manuel to order that Andronicus, if caught, should be blinded. But Andronicus would not be captured. He began having children with Theodora and moved his family north, first to Georgia, and then eventually to a Turkic court in the Armenian mountains, where he was given a fortress to live in. This fort was in the same region as Trebizond, and somehow, in spring 1180, the governor of Trebizond managed to kidnap Theodora and her children, whisking them away to Constantinople. Apparently, out of genuine care for his family, Andronicus offered to give himself up, He asked for a guarantee of his safety and then presented himself before Manuel and the assembled court. He put on quite a performance, entering with a chain around his neck and begging to be dragged to the emperor's feet. Whether it was the support that Andronicus still enjoyed at court or the affection that lingered in Manuel's heart, the emperor forgave and embraced his cousin. It would be a touching scene if we knew nothing of the horrors to come. After allowing Andronicus to say goodbye to his family, the prince was separated from them. It was an unauthorised and incestuous marriage and had to come to an end. They could stay in Constantinople, but Andronicus was forced to leave. He was given a generous residence in the town of Oineon, on the coast of the Black Sea, about halfway back to Trebizond. Tragically, this would prove to be Manuel's second greatest folly. By August, the emperor had come to accept that he was dying. The patriarch Theodosius advised him to abandon astrology for the sake of his soul, which Manuel apparently did. The archbishop also advised that a regency council be created to safeguard the interests of Alexius, Manuel's 11-year-old son. It's not clear if anything official was established. Manawil seems to have put his faith in his wife, Maria of Antioch. On the 24th of September, Manawil asked to take monastic vows. He swapped his purple cloak for a monk's habit and then died. He was nearly 62 years old and had ruled the empire for 37 years. As I mentioned last time, I want to dedicate a whole episode to Manuel's reign, in which I will talk a lot more about how good an emperor he was and how we should understand his reign. But I should start by saying that despite his many follies, Manuel was a decent emperor. You can't rule for 37 years without being good at the job. And though we tend to think of the role of emperor in terms of battles or buildings, a lot of the job is just the day-to-day business of maintaining power. This means running things with reasonable efficiency, keeping an eye on justice and the flow of money, giving people a sense of direction, and keeping your political rivals quiet. Manuel did all those things well, and the chaos that followed his death underlines the balancing act he'd managed so skillfully. Manuel did all those things well, and the chaos that followed his death underlines the balancing act that he'd been managing skillfully. I think Manuel had the misfortune of living in interesting times. This period of Byzantine history has been unlike anything else I've studied. There were times in the 8th and 9th centuries when I didn't need to reference outside powers at all, beyond the caliphate. Whereas learning about Manuel has been like studying early modern history, where the behaviour of one European monarch has consequences for all the others. If the Roman Empire had continued to be a major power, I suspect this is what the podcast would sound like from now on, discussing marriage alliances and treaties and the opinions of popes and kings. Given that Byzantium had never had to deal with such a crowded chessboard before, I think we have to cut Manuel some slack. I've been very critical of his decision-making, but in some cases he had few precedents to call upon. I stand by the criticisms I've made, but we'll talk more about them next time. The one thing we have to accept is that Manuel was right all along. During the Second Crusade, he had a vision of Latin armies sacking Constantinople, and he dedicated his life to making sure that that wouldn't happen he would have been heartbroken to discover that 24 years after his death, the nightmare came true. Nikitas Koniates' writing in the aftermath of that disaster grudgingly acknowledged Manuel's foresight. Koniates is first in line to blame Manuel for his failings, but he says this about his policy of taking money from Byzantine taxpayers and giving it to the Latins. While the emperor was thus managing these affairs, the Romans jeered at him for vainly nurturing such inordinate ambitions and setting his eyes upon the ends of the earth and for squandering to no useful purpose the revenues which he collected. The citizenry was not at all justified, however, in hurling such accusations, inasmuch as his actions were not completely unreasonable, for he had seen the irresistible power of the neighbour Latin nations, and feared a conspiracy that would deluge our lands like a swollen mountain stream suddenly cresting and sweeping away farmlands. And because of this suspicion, he attempted to extinguish the cause of vexations by imitating those excellent husbandmen who uproot the young prickly plants which ruin the garden plot and destroy the newly budding wild trees. As events were to demonstrate after he had departed this life, his thoughts and actions were both sound and reasonable, and shortly after this wise helmsman was cast overboard by circumstance, the ship of state sank. End quote. That description of Manuel as a wise helmsman is, deliberately or not, the same comparison made by Anna Komneny about her father Alexius. Despite the mistakes he made, Manuel had maintained the Comnenian system of government through to its centenary. His grandfather had inherited a keeling ship in 1081, and now in 1180 the ship was still gliding steadily, through increasingly choppy waters. Next time, I'll elaborate on where I think Manuel went right and where he went wrong, and confess my guilt over my own judgments. I will also answer any questions you have about Manuel's reign, so do post on the website or social media, or email me, thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com. For those of you who'd like to know more about Frederick Barbarossa and the history of Germany in this period, then help is at hand. Dirk Hoffman is tackling the huge topic of German history from 919 to 1991. Dirk already has over 50 episodes in the can for you to enjoy, and it's all right on stream for our current narrative. If you want to learn more about Conrad, the Second Crusade, and of course Barbarossa himself, then check out the History of the Germans podcast at historyofthegermans.com